The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Hello and welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. My name is Becky Olson and I'm a three-time 20-year breast cancer survivor. Hi, and I'm Sharon Hennepin. I'm a 22-year breast cancer survivor. We are the co-founders of Breast Friends and we have a great program lined up for you today. Today's show is about the worst nightmare for cancer survivors. Mm -hmm. What happens when our cancer metastasizes? And uh, we have a great guest with us. And our guest today is a specialist in this field. We have Dr. David Page. He's a medical oncologist with Providence Cancer Systems in Portland, Oregon. And he is here to share his expertise in this metastatic disease arena. Uh, He does clinical trials. And if anyone knows anything about this subject, Dr. Page is our guy. So please welcome Dr. Page. Hey, (laughs) welcome to our show. Thank you for this opportunity, Becky and Sharon. Absolutely. We're We're excited to have you. Yeah, we couldn't have thought of a better guest for this particular topic. So so we're excited to have you on board, and we're going to start, Dr. Page, by having you tell us about yourself. I know that you came from Sloan Kettering, and everybody knows that's like the top of the line. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to Portland? Sure. You know, I think this is a great opportunity to give uh, a sense of hope for patients with metastatic disease as well. I wanted to take just a couple minutes to give you a story as to why I decided to pursue this career to treat breast cancer and to focus on metastatic disease. So when I was a medical student, this was back in Chicago about 10 years ago, uh, I went through two years of courses, probably about four hours of coursework a day, And there was one particular lecture that I received that really stood out in my memory and was probably the most interesting and exciting thing I had learned about for those couple years. And that was a course that taught you about how the immune system could be used to treat cancer. And Mm. it sounds kind of like a farce, actually, but it's a reality. And I was so interested when I heard that, just like infections could be cleared by immune cells, cancer could also be. I actually wanted to learn more about this, and I looked into programs at Sloan Kettering, which is a very large cancer center in New York, and they were sponsoring students to go to work with a special doctor who focused on these types of new treatments. So I went there, and I worked with a doctor. His name was Jed Walchuk. And he treated not breast cancer, but melanoma. 
And if anybody is aware of this disease, it's a very difficult one to treat. It's a skin cancer. Uh, people were being treated with chemotherapy for many, many years, and unfortunately the chemo didn't really do much for those patients other than mm-hmm. perhaps relieve symptoms for a couple months. <clears throat> and there was a clinical trial of a new drug that used the immune system to treat melanoma. Uh, the concept is that you, you boost the immune system. Those immune cells actually can see the, the, the cancer as being abnormal, and uh, you hope that the immune system can take it from there and clear the cancer. Wow. And most of the patients I saw in that clinic weren't doing so hot. They were receiving chemo, and it was very discouraging because a lot of them had passed away over the course of the couple months that I was there. But there were a few patients who received this experimental treatment, and lo and behold, you would see patients with their scans with cancer, and then three months later, the cancers would start to disappear. And wow. this is metastatic wow. disease. Wow, that's amazing. So that was my inspiration, and actually, fast-forwarding a few years, I had to decide how I would proceed with research and to contribute, and I realized that breast cancer, it's 240,000 women diagnosed a year, and there was very little research in the arena of using the immune system to treat breast cancer, and that's why I decided to pursue breast cancer. I wanted to take this unique therapeutic approach and to see if we can use it to benefit the hundreds of thousands of women that have breast cancer. So that's in a nutshell. That tells you why I'm interested in treating breast cancer. And I'm here in Portland at Providence Medical Center because we have a very specialized focus on researching this new treatment direction, which is immune therapy. We are so blessed here, you know, in Oregon. We have got some of the top, top, top medical facilities in this area, and we are so blessed, and and Providence was really smart to hire you, so yay, (laughs) sounds like a a good thing. Well, Dr. Page, let me ask you kind of just a basic question, and and I'm going to, I want to preface it for just a second. When I was diagnosed my third time with breast cancer, you know, I was was stage three the first two times, and the third time, you know, I'd already had a double mastectomy, I thought I was done, and we found this hot spot behind my breastbone near my chest wall. And when they did the PET scan, the radiologist came back and said it was consistent with metastatic disease. So, you know, hearing metastatic and cancer in the same sentence is never a good thing. But I think there's a lot of confusion around what is metastatic cancer. Is it when it goes into the lymph nodes? Does that make it metastatic? Is it always stage four? Is that what makes it metastatic? Would you clear up that mystery for us? For sure. I have to say that it's probably the doctor's fault because we use a ton of jargon. And the word metastatic in itself could mean multiple different things. I think when you think of the basics of what it means, it means that it's a cancer that's been able to spread from the site of origin to elsewhere. And if you think of it that way, uh, it makes a lot of sense. But putting it in context of patients, it could become confusing. Yeah. One of the most common uses of that word is when a patient has a lymph node under the arm in the axilla that has breast cancer in it. And technically, that could be considered a metastasis. And that's for the the generalized purpose of using the word is that it spread from the breast and it went to the lymph node. That being said, those patients are still very much curable. And the reason is because we can surgically remove that site of cancer that had spread to underneath the arm. We can use radiation, and Mm -hmm. we can also use surgical lymph node dissection. So that means an entirely different thing. 
Now, when somebody is told that they have stage 4 disease or metastatic disease that had spread elsewhere from, for example, the breast to the liver or to the bones or to the chest, as was in your case, that means something different. And the reason is because once cancer has spread beyond the lymph nodes in the arm and in the breast, there is a general thought that is probably spread in multiple locations. Mm. So you would think, well, why can't I just surgically remove it? And unfortunately, in many cases, if you have breast cancer that's spread beyond those boundaries, if you remove one spot and you don't treat the patient with a whole body therapy, you might be disappointed to see that there's cancer growing in other locations when you check again. Wow. So I think that those are two different meanings for the word. And as a patient, when you hear the word metastatic, you have to clarify. Um, but in general, if someone's told they have stage 4 metastatic disease, that means it is spread to the point where doing surgery does not necessarily help the patient. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember when I when I was diagnosed with that. I mean, I have to say, it was pretty frightening. I mean, you know, the first time was scary. The second time was pretty much the same diagnosis as the first time, so not quite so bad because I knew survived it before I could do it again. But the third time was a little frightening. But I do remember the radiologist offering to you know presenting options on how to treat it. And we decided against chemo, and we decided that radiation was really my only option because where it was located, they couldn't surgically remove it. And he said, so we have an option. We can either treat just that one spot, or we can treat the entire region with radiation. And and I said to him, I said, well, it's kind of like when I see an ant on my floor. If I see one on my floor, I know there's probably thousands of them in the wall, so let's treat the wall. And that's what we did. And I'm very pleased to say that all of my scans since then have come back clean with no evidence of disease. But what I'm hearing you say and what I've always kind of held back, total enthusiasm is knowing that once it's kind of reached that point, it could surface again, right? I mean, even though all my scans have been clean, that was in 2009. So it's been seven years now. Um, in fact, seven years this month. And... um but is it likely that it something like that could still be in there somewhere? Well, I think anything is possible in life, and that's a lesson mm-hmm. that's learned when uh, people live. There's surprises. Yeah. <laughs> I think it True. is a very important job, though, of the medical oncologist and the radiation doctors to preserve hope and to be yeah. hopeful that we can expect or plan for the best outcomes possible. Sure. In your case, it was very unique because they did say it had metastasized to a different site, but it was a site that was right next to the primary location of the tumor. So conceivably, in your case, the cancer had spread from the breast to the chest wall and to beyond, and that in itself may have been something that was very much treatable with a local strategy, for example, Mm -hmm. using radiation to that Mm -hmm. area. Okay. So in that case, you know, we say, let's go for it. Let's assume that this cancer had learned to spread, but only in that localized area. And let's mm-hmm. treat that as such and hope for the best. And thankfully, yeah. in your case, this is a very good demonstration that hope prevails. And yes, it seems indeed. as though the treatment was very effective for you. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's been good. So, yeah, I've kind of got that attitude now that, you know, it may come back someday, maybe, Maybe not, but not today. <laughs> so today I'm good, and today I can keep doing what I do. And 
And, and that's really the hope we want to give a lot of the women out there who might be listening to this right now, that regardless of your circumstances, there's always hope. So, um, so to, how do you, how does a person know if they have metastatic disease? What, what are, are there some telltale signs? Is there a test? How do they, how do they know? Well, you know, this becomes a very important point in the clinic and a source of anxiety for patients who mm-hmm. had surgery for early stage breast cancer for, for lumps that were removed with surgery and perhaps treated with chemo to, or to hope for cure. And the source of anxiety is that the patients are told by their doctors in most cases that we will not be getting tests on a routine basis to look for metastatic disease. We're mm-hmm. not going to be getting scans. We're not going to be getting blood tests here and there. And it sounds kind of jarring when you hear that. But the yeah. reality is <laughs> that, you know, there have been thousands of patients over the course of many years in breast cancer specifically who have been subjected to getting scans every six months or every year and getting mm-hmm. blood tests. And those patients have been looked at and compared to patients who have not been required to get scans. And frankly, they do just as well without the scans as they did with the scans. Mm-hmm. And I think the important mm-hmm. point is that in the unfortunate scenario when a woman does have breast cancer that's spread to other parts of the body, for example, the bones or the liver, we can't cure those patients with the therapies that we have now. And for that reason, if we do scans and subject these patients to anxiety-provoking tests every six months, perhaps we might find that the cancer had spread one or two or three months early but unfortunately, that does not really alter the fact that we can't cure the cancer. And for that reason, it doesn't benefit the patient. Mm-hmm. And they've looked at this very intensively. And on average, if a woman gets scans every three to six months, per, the average time that you gain, so that you gain about one or two weeks in terms of finding out the diagnosis. So wow. frankly, it's not worth all that anxiety. Now, that being said, I said it's incurable. Metastatic breast cancer is incurable, and that is with current therapies. And, of course, I do want to emphasize the fact that that is not good enough for anybody. Medical oncologists do not go to medical school and residency and fellowship to tell patients that they cannot cure their disease. So I think that's why it's important mm, to pursue new types of treatment and clinical mm-hmm. trials where, you know, eventually we will have that ability to cure patients. Right, right. Yeah. You know, going back to what you said just a minute ago, there do seem to be two schools of thought with, with different medical oncologists. Sharon's, Sharon's oncologist, when she went through her battle, Sharon, didn't you get tested every year? After yeah, I just, that had for a, a while? I just had a chest x-ray. That was yeah. all I had for, and, you know. And, and again, there's a certain amount of anxiety even... Even just going, even just going having your your annual test. I mean, yeah. whether it's a mammogram or or uh, or a uh, test like that or a scan of some sort. Yeah. So so I can see what what uh, Doctor Page is saying about that. That it yeah. and may then doctor, not make any difference. My doctor um, came from comes from the other school of thought, and he never he never checked me. And I asked him one day, I said, so why, I mean, my friend goes in every year and gets a test and you don't test me, what's the deal? And he said, you know, if I test you and you come out negative, like there's nothing wrong, and then you start to have a a pain or something that doesn't feel right, 
you will ignore it because you just got tested and it could be that the test missed something. He says, on the other hand, you could end up having a test and it shows some spot that looks like something and then you have all this anxiety and we do follow-ups and it's nothing. He goes, the way I, the way I feel about it and the way a lot of doctors feel about it is if something is wrong, you will let me know. And that's how we found my third time around is I had this really weird pain. We went in and looked at it and he says, that's probably worth checking out. And it was completely unrelated, but that scan revealed my this hot spot behind my, my breastbone. So, you know, there there's different ways to look at it. Not everyone does it the same way, but it makes sense what you're saying, you know, not to test all the time. It makes sense to me anyway. And, right. you know, and we still found it. So, because you know, something wasn't right. I admit, we have to work harder to find tests that are more reliable. Yeah. So when right. we have a blood test that has an 80% chance of being accurate, Mm-hmm. And when it's positive and it leads to patients having so much anxiety and then having to get biopsies that end up being mm-hmm. false, you know, that actually harms the patient. So yeah. I think eventually this is going to be a different story where perhaps we have a blood test that we can check and know with precision that something's going on, but that's not the reality now. Yeah. So, you know, it, there are different perspectives, though, and I'd be curious to hear from Sharon, how, if you thought that those annual x-rays provided you a sense of reassurance or if it was more anxiety for you? Well, I think overall they were um, reassuring, uh, but I did have a false positive one time that I thought maybe I had lung cancer <laughs> or that it had metastasized to my lungs. And I can tell you that was extremely um, anxiety-provoking, and I flipped out a bit. <laughs> so, so yeah, it it can actually do both um, because so it's not the the necessarily the cure all type of answer either. So I I've kind of experienced both. Right. Yeah. So I, I remember when you went through that. That was pretty pretty scary. You, I remember you feeling that you had possibly yeah. lung cancer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that was. <laughs> that's one of the interesting things about once you've had cancer, every ache and pain doesn't mean it is, but <laughs> but we tend to kind of go that direction for sure. Yeah. We, we only have a we only have a couple minutes left in this segment. Um, so actually, one minute left in this segment. So, Doctor Page, before we go out to break, is there anything else you would like to add about any of the things that we've talked about so far? No, I think I do. Just want to stress that point that you made, which is you have to be attuned to your own body. Yeah, if absolutely. If you sense something is wrong, you call your doctor, and yes. that is the best way of screening for metastatic disease is to have open communication. And if you trust your doctor and have an open line of communication, then if something is brewing, you will find it early, and that's what's important. Absolutely. And and don't worry about being seen as a hypochondriac or anything. I actually went to a doctor one time. I had a a sore throat, and it was really troubling me. And he said, oh, yeah, all you people. And I was like, all what people? He says, all you cancer people. You always think it's cancer. And I actually... Canceled my point. I walked out. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you have to build a relationship with your yeah. oncologist where you feel like you can trust him. Yeah. And if he or she, you know, thinks that you're being a little bit too astute with every little yeah. symptom, he should be able to tell you that yeah. in a polite way and to educate yeah. you as to what to look for. And that wasn't so even I, my oncologist. That was an ear, nose, and throat specialist. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. we're, we do have to take out, go out to break now. So we are going to, um, you're going to, we'll be back in a couple of minutes, but we do want to encourage callers. If you have either 
if you're either dealing with metastatic cancer right now, or you're living with it, we'd love to hear from you. Our number is 866-472-5792, and we will be back in just a couple of minutes. Thank you. Fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking about metastatic disease with Dr. David Page. So, I understand you're very involved in clinical trials. Yes, so I tell- am. So, so tell us a little bit about um, the clinical trials that you're working on. You know what what it entails and um, what the risks might be. For sure, you know I think the goal of a clinical trial is very clear, which is to improve upon the standard of care treatment. So, I I want to demythify clinical trials. I think a lot of people, when they hear the word trial they automatically assume that it is an experiment run by doctors putting one group of patients into a placebo arm or a sugar pill arm and another group into an experimental therapy. And the reality of the situation is that those types of trials are actually very uncommon these days. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, when you have a clinical trial, it assumes that you could only improve upon the standard of care. So what does it entail? Many trials do have a randomization, which means that women who are enrolled to the trial uh, have to accept uh, a, a computer deciding which of two treatments they would receive. That's, that's the most common type of trial. And what it usually does is it takes a patient and it gives them what they would have received otherwise, what the standard treatment is that your oncologist probably would have selected anyway, for example, a chemotherapy regimen. And then we randomize patients to also receive a new experimental treatment. 
So, for example, I was talking about how new drugs can stimulate the immune system to seek and destroy cancer. Many clinical trials evaluating those new treatments will have patients receive chemotherapy, and then half of the patients are randomized to receive immune therapy on top of that. Uh, okay. Okay. So, what so there really like isn't a lot of risk. There could be a lot of upside then. Well, there's definitely a lot of upside, and actually trials are not approved by hospitals and boards unless they perceive that the risks are lower than the perceived benefits. So, yes. I would say a clinical trial by default should be a treatment that potentially is better than the standard of care. Now, that being said, there are risks of clinical trials. And as you might imagine, if you sign up to receive an experimental treatment, there is also the risk that the side effects from that treatment outweigh the benefits. Okay. And the yeah, only way for sense. doctors to know that is to, you know, do experiments trial in, it, sure. and in animals, make sure that it's safe. And mm-hmm. if it looks safe, then we have to try it in, in patients. And I would say that that's the number one risk that you face is that maybe the side effects might be worse. Maybe the benefits of the new treatment were overinflated and perhaps it won't work as well as we anticipated. So there are some risks, but I think in general, when a patient is given an opportunity for a trial, that's actually a very good uh, and potentially better uh, option for that patient. I'm glad right. you clarified right. that because I think there's a lot of confusion around trials that, like Sharon said you know, a few minutes ago, that you're either going to get the real drug or you're going to get sugar pills. And getting sugar pills if you're a cancer patient is yeah. very <laughs> counterproductive, I'm sure. We actually have a caller on the line with us. We have Stacy from Oregon. Stacy, are you there? Hello? Stacy? Yes. Oh, there you are. Hi, Stacy. We've got Dr. Page on the line with us. We'd lo- Thanks for calling in. Did you have a question or something you'd like to just share with us or talk about? Um, I was calling because um, we had talked about, the, about choice and um, how cancer can take so much, but uh, you can choose to feel about things and be positive. And Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So are you, you're a metastatic patient? Yes, yes, I, uh, I'm 33, and I got diagnosed with, um, well, my reoccurrence got diagnosed last, actually, a year ago, just a couple days ago. Oh, wow. And I'm stage four now. Hmm. Yes. Um, so- I got diagnosed originally at 24, and I was stage one, and so now, at 33, I am stage four, and when I have been doing a lot of struggling and Searching for how to move forward at such a young age with such a, a early diagnosis, um, I came across an article that was a hundred quotes by very famous people, and one was the one thing that no one can take away from you is how you choose to feel about something. Yeah, and cancer very can take true. so much away from you. Mm-hmm. It can take away, you know, physical body parts. It can take away, you know, hope. It can take away your job. It can take away family and and friendships, and, you know, you can choose to let it do that, or you can choose to find the positive and, and move forward and and do what you can to make life better for yourself and for those around you. And that's Absolutely. what I try to do on a daily basis. So, Stacey, that's you- a great attitude because it is hard. It's very hard to, and if you concentrate all the, on the, all the stuff you've lost, you're right. You can go really down into a deep, deep place, can't you? 
Yes, exactly. And so it's it's so much better to try and find the the positive in things. And yes, I have had cancer at a very early age, but it has brought me a wonderful people in my life that I would have never met otherwise. That's I've had true. amazing opportunities that I would have never had otherwise. I've had so many experiences and adventures and just close opportunities with individual people that have opened my heart and my eyes to a world, you know, I never would have known otherwise. Yeah. And, and so a new appreciation for everything, right? I mean, you just yeah. really, really change your focus. And mm-hmm. Stacy, let me ask you a question if it's okay. Um, are you, what kind of treatment are you on right now? Do you mind sharing that? Not at all. I'm actually just about to finish chemotherapy. I've been in chemotherapy for almost a year. And okay. so I'm on my third drug um, on Havilin. Okay. Also known as Arubilin. Okay. So, you know, this is very inspirational for me as well. And you've been through so much, and it seems like you've stayed strong through it and adopted a very positive perspective. And, you know, this this type of attitude goes well beyond cancer. I think in general life is, you know, a lot of great things, but a lot of discouraging things happen along the way, and you have to rebound from that and just take stock of things and say, how could I move on and how could I learn from what's happening and, and make the best of it? And I think that's a great perspective uh, for both cancer patients and for non-cancer patients. And you, you have to be prepared for disappointments in life and you have to try your best to move on. So I'm glad that you're doing well and that uh, you're staying strong through chemotherapy. Uh, we all know that chemotherapy is not the easiest thing to go through and <laughs> There are you know, millions of patients around the world that are receiving treatment in your situation and also women who are trying to cure their cancer who have had early stage disease and surgery who are going through the same chemotherapy uh, challenges. So um, I, I'm happy to hear that you're doing so well and you're pervading through this difficult time. Thank you. Thank you, Stacy, so much for calling. Um, hopefully, you'll keep listening and, and uh, hear something that might be helpful for you. So, thank you so much. So, thank let's you. get back to, to cl- yeah, absolutely. Let's get back to clinical trials for just a minute, David. Um, how do you get selected for, or how do you participate in a clinical trial? Well, I think one of the jobs of the medical oncologist is to always be looking and surveying for clinical trials that might benefit you as a patient. Okay. Now, sometimes it's more challenging than others. Uh, for example, when the treatments that are available are so effective, sometimes it's hard to even do a trial because you have to show that it improves upon an already excellent therapy. So I would argue that in women who have new diagnoses of early stage breast cancer where they're cured with surgery and they receive chemotherapy and radiation, sometimes endocrine therapy, those women do so very well that it's almost difficult to show that a new treatment will improve upon that. So that being said, perhaps in breast cancer compared to other cancers, there are fewer clinical trials in some scenarios. But that being said, it is the job of your doctor to say, is there a trial option that might be better than the standard treatment for my patient? And if so, can I get that patient that clinical trial? Mm -hmm. Now, one of the challenges is with trials 
is that trials are often only located in one or two hospitals, and they're very regional in nature. And the reason is that if you would think if you're going to treat a patient with a new experimental drug, you have to be very careful in monitoring that patient and making sure that if they have side effects, that those side effects are addressed very quickly. So unfortunately, if, for example, there's a trial at Providence Hospital, but you live you know, far away, three hours from Portland, it may be very difficult for your local doctor to give you that trial. So you might end up having to drive in every three hours to get to that particular hospital. Mm -hmm. So I would say as a patient, you, you should have a doctor that's looking into those options for you. And if not, you can always ask your medical oncologist, are there any clinical trials for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and I, I've also worked with a lot of metastatic patients that have been really their own health advocate where they are researching and asking, okay, does this trial work for me? You know, would I qualify for this if I had too much chemo to qualify for this particular trial? I mean, they're really um, active in their own um, health care, which I think is amazingly admirable. And I agree, and there's a lot of resources for any patient with cancer to look to see if there are clinical trials in their area. There's a website that's run by the government. It's called clinicaltrials.gov.gov, and it is basically a Google search engine of all the clinical trials in the United States, and actually the government requires that trials be listed there, and it actually could tell you if they're enrolling patients what hospitals the trials are available at. You can search for your type of breast cancer. You can search for the type of treatment that you're interested in receiving. And it gives you a very good resource for you to be your own advocate in finding a trial. So I would definitely encourage patients uh, to take a look at that and to have their doctors help to, you know, sift through those trials that they may find to see if they're actually uh, potentially beneficial to you. Okay, good. That's really great news. We should put that on our website for sure. Yeah, I was just thinking that. In fact, Dr. Page, would you be willing to maybe write a little short article about that? And we'll include that in our next newsletter um, that goes out because we have that a link. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with that link, because I, I wasn't aware of that. And I think that's of course. fabulous. And there so. are other resources, too. I, some patients are concerned about, as you described, the potential risks of trials and There's a website that's also developed by the National Cancer Institute that gives you information about what it means to be on a trial and what the potential risks are. So that would be a very good resource for patients for us to put that together. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. So does does a clinical trial always mean that I have the possibility of getting on a placebo kind of thing? I mean, you've explained the placebo better, so I understand it better, but... um, um, I think, like like Becky was mentioning, that placebo idea sounds like the sugar pill. <laughs> well, so very uncommonly, and I would say that the only time that there is a trial that puts a patient on a sugar pill or a placebo is when the standard treatment is nothing. Okay. So I could give you a couple examples. Ah, uh, okay. One of them, and this is unfortunate, but in... I, let's let's dial back 15 years ago when we had metastatic melanoma. So this is skin cancer, not breast cancer. The reality was there was one chemotherapy that was FDA approved for the treatment of metastatic disease, and patients would get that treatment. And if that treatment failed that patient, 
then the standard of care, believe it or not, was uh, palliative care and no further chemotherapy. And oh. it was unfortunate, it was saddening for me to see that, but it was the reality that other chemotherapies harmed patients more than helped them. Right. So Now, if you were to have a new treatment, for example, an immune therapy for that patient, and you wanted to show that it helped, what would you do in order to show that it helped? The answer to that is you would take patients and you would randomize patients to either get that new treatment or to get palliative care. And the reason why is because that was the standard. So you could think of that as being a placebo. They're not getting any chemotherapy. They're not getting any other treatments. They're just getting what was standard. So that is one of the very, very few circumstances where I have seen clinical trials in modern day that use a placebo-type treatment. Uh, and that's simply because there were no other treatments for that patient. Makes sense. Now, in breast cancer, that's very uncommon. And the reality is there are many, many chemotherapies for breast cancer that work. One particular scenario where there might be a placebo is if a patient, for example, with curative cancer, with a lump that was removed, after that patient received their chemotherapy and all their other treatments, you might say, well, let's see if adding an extra drug helps patients once they've received the standard. And you might want to randomize patients in that situation to receive either nothing or the experimental intervention. But Mm, I wouldn't say that that's harming the patient because the standard was for them not to get treatment. Yeah, Um, We only have a couple minutes till our next break, but we do have a caller on hold, and we would love to bring her on. We've got Marianne, and so Marianne, if we end up cutting you off, we'll keep you on through the break, okay? So are you there? Awesome. All right. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Hi, how are you guys? Doing great. Thanks for calling. So do you have a question for Dr. Page? I do. I actually have a couple. Um, Going back to the idea of why you can't remove a bone when it has metastasized to a bone. I've been recently um, confirmed that my cancer has metastasized to my bone. Mm-hmm. And Bummer. yeah, one of the areas that it is located is in the rib. And people ask me, why can't you just remove that rib? And I think I know the answer, but I was interested in hearing what Dr. Page had to say. Well, I would say that the the main concern is that surgery requires healing. It's not a walk in the park. You know, there's always the pain associated with surgery, the risks of surgery. And one of the biggest risks that we might face if we pursue surgery on this bone metastasis is that Lo and behold, after you've had the surgery and had time to recover and we checked a scan, it might be, and it is quite possible that if you're not receiving a whole body therapy, for example, a chemotherapy or a hormonal therapy, that lo and behold, we see other sites of bone that have cancer in it now because we hadn't addressed the whole body. So I would say that is the risk. If we focus on what's visible on a scan, and we treat what's visible on a scan, then we are relying on the accuracy of that scan. And unfortunately, scans are not very great at detecting very small spots of cancer. So what I would say to you is I would, I would think of a whole body strategy that will treat that spot in the bone but also spots elsewhere. 
and see uh, and check and make sure that that whole body therapy is working and reassess every three months. And there may actually come a time when you're doing so well that there's no other spread of cancer anywhere that you might want to consider removing a single spot of cancer once you've been assured that you've been able to prevent cancer from spreading elsewhere. That makes sense. Right. Well, we, we do actually have to go out on break. So, Marianne, you can okay. stay with us on the line if you don't mind. And we are going to Perfect. take a short Thank break, you. and we'll be back. Um, but be thinking about your questions, and we'd love to invite you to call one 472 5792 and we'll be back in a couple minutes. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Well, welcome back. We're talking to Dr. David Page about metastatic disease, and we actually have Marianne on the line with us as well. Marianne, you said you had one more uh, question for Dr. Page. I do. This is a totally new subject. Um, Why do some oncologists check cancer markers and some don't for breast cancer? I think the answer to that is that tumor markers are not perfect. And there mm-hmm. are we have been ingrained in expecting that tumor markers are helpful. We've been using them for many years. 
Uh, we all know that some cancers don't even make tumor markers. Tumor markers mm. are proteins that are found on the surface of some cancers, but not all. And the proteins get shed into the blood and you can measure them. Mm. But we've realized that they're not perfect. So you can start a patient on therapy that is very effective. You can get scans in 12 weeks and you can see shrinkage of tumors. And if you check those markers every month, they may actually increase. So, you know, there have been very many studies looking to see if we can actually help the patients see if we can improve their outcomes by measuring tumor markers, and those studies have been very inconclusive. So I would say that a lot of it is style. Some doctors will use those markers, and others will acknowledge that, you know, sometimes they may be misleading, and it's frankly not even proven to be useful. So I would say that it's a very personal question for every oncologist, and as long as the oncologist puts it into the right perspective and interprets them with caution, then it's still acceptable to get those markers. Mm, okay, well, that's an interesting, because um, you're right, there are, like, we work with ovarian cancer patients, and a lot of times they are very connected to that CA125, you know, marker, and and, yeah, breast cancer isn't really measured like that very often. And they don't all play by the same rules, you know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's very confusing because you look at other cancers and the tumor markers are used nonstop and there's much more evidence that they're helpful. So it's every, every individual cancer is a different disease. That's the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so wow. true. Well, thank so you. very true. Well, thank you, Marianne, for calling. We really appreciate it. So um, you. hopefully you'll keep listening and you'll be able to hear some other great information from Dr. Page. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, Dr. Page, are there cures for metastatic breast cancer? Well, I certainly hope that there will be a cure, and that is what drives medical oncologists to work Mm -hmm. as much as they do and to do research as well as treating patients. But I think the unfortunate reality now is that when a patient truly has breast cancer that's metastasized to many spots in the body, so not particular situations where it may have metastasized behind the chest wall, but throughout the body. There mm-hmm. is no one treatment that is available now that has been shown to cure those patients. Mm-hmm. That being said, there's a lot of new treatments that are in development. Some of them have recently been approved, and there's some in the pipeline. And we certainly hope that over the next 10 or 20 years, we'll develop some treatments that have the potential for cure. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we, we kind of think sometimes of metastatic disease, you know, in some situations as being more like a chronic illness. You know, when you think about someone with diabetes who has to rely on insulin for the rest of their lives, or, you know, they've got some other, you know, arthritis or some condition that, that they're just going to live with. And, you know, with metastatic cancer, sometimes it, you know, we've known women who've lived with metastatic conditions for many, many, many years. They're doing well. They will be on medications the rest of their lives. How, how common is that? I mean, is that a good way to kind of think of this? Or I would think? say that it's increasingly common. And that okay. is a very a hopeful way of, of, of looking at metastatic disease as a chronic condition that could be managed for many, many years. And I want to give you a couple examples of how that's becoming more and more of a reality. So there are different subtypes of breast cancer, and as you are diagnosed, you are educated by your oncologist that you have one type versus the other. For example, there's the HER2-positive breast cancers, 
and there's mm-hmm. triple negative breast cancers, and then there's breast cancers that feed off of hormones, the estrogen receptor and the mm-hmm. progesterone receptor. So in each of those fields, there are new medications that are making it more and more reality that at least in some or many patients, we can make breast cancer a chronic disease rather than something that's not treatable. So I want to give you one example, which I think is the most potent, which is women with HER2-positive breast cancer. There's a new mm-hmm. drug that's called Pergida. The other name for it is Pertuzumab. And that drug was discovered a while back, and it's been approved now for both early-stage curable breast cancer and metastatic. And what they have recently showed that every single patient who receives this drug on the trial lives on average 16 months longer than they would have without receiving that drug. Now, that's that great. Like, I think that sounds great. You know, some people would say, well, 16 months, I want to live a lot longer than that. But right. you have to keep in mind that that's in addition to the benefit they're receiving from their other therapies. So that's mm-hmm. one extra drug, 16 more months, and that's a median. So that means half of the patients who receive it may actually live longer. And I'll tell you, there's every single medical oncologist who treats breast cancer has patients that have been living for 5, 10, 15 years on drugs like this. And I think that is very reassuring, and that is a definite source of hope for patients. Well, and you never know, too, within that 16 months, I mean, with all the research being done, they could come up with something new in that 16 months. Of course. And that might be the thing that kicks it in the butt and fixes it, you know. Right. So, so 16 months is great. We're not relying on old medicines for yeah. anymore. Yeah. No, there's a lot of hope in that. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's great. You know, you mentioned um, triple, well, I think you mentioned triple negative, And if not, it's probably because I was fantasizing about it. But triple negative is a tough one because no one really knows what feeds it. So what are they doing for that? Well, so let me first define what triple negative is. So okay. we do these tests. We look for hormone receptors so that we see if the cancers feed off of female hormones, if we can block the hormones. And then we look for HER2. Those are the two things. And if you have HER2 positive, you get HER2-based treatments like the one I just described. Mm-hmm. If you have hormone positive, you get hormone blockers. The, the middle ground is when you don't have either, and it's called triple negative breast cancer. And unfortunately, those patients don't benefit from either of those strategies. So what we rely on is chemotherapy for those patients. And, you know, chemotherapy... You know, there's a lot of stigma attached to it. I, I would argue that some chemotherapies are tolerable and patients could be on it for a very, very long time. Uh, what's good is that this type of breast cancer, it grows fast, but it certainly dies fast. And patients can mm. have very remarkable responses just with conventional chemotherapy. Cool. So that's, that's one direction. And there's a lot of new chemos that are being developed. But I would say the more fascinating direction is harnessing the immune system to treat this particular type of yeah. cancer. Tell us about that. Is, what? Tell us about that, because that, that uh-huh. really does sound exciting. So these cancers are aggressive. They grow fast. They don't look like normal breast cells when you look under the microscope. They look foreign. They look unusual. And lo and behold, the immune system also could see them as being foreign entities. It's almost like the immune system could see these cancers as if they were infected cells. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, there's a lot of evidence that the immune system could actually be used to harness and to treat those types of breast cancer. So there have been studies where we actually take drugs that give a boost to the immune system. They're not very 
fancy in how they work. They just basically turn on immune cells. And lo and behold, we see a group of patients with triple negative breast cancer have very dramatic responses with their cancers shrinking throughout the body. And it seems as though because the immune system is involved that when the treatment works, it works for a very long time. And uh, if you look at melanoma, the skin cancers, some of those patients who have responses to immune therapy have responses for 10 years or more. Wow. So that would suggest to me that if you want to say that there's a potential for cure, then this type of treatment is where it's at. Wow. That makes sense. That makes that sense. Does. You know, we because have four minutes until we're going to close, so I, I just want to kind of let you know. But, Sharon, go ahead. Ask your question. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, those um, metastatic uh, cancer cells are pretty pretty ornery you know they they kind of are really smart and they figure out how to morph so um using your own immune system seems like that might outsmart those really smart <laughs> cancer cells it does I, seem I that way i mean you have to harness your own body strengths and that is why there's so much promise in this new field and we're just getting started for breast cancer and that, that's my goal is a researcher is to open as many trials and immune therapies possible, both for metastatic breast cancer, but also for trying to improve cure rates in early stage mm-hmm. disease. Let me ask a question about that. You said that it's not, they're not fancy things, but are these substances that a person would use to build their immune system, are they chemical based? Are they natural based? Are they herbs? Or is it broccoli? I mean, what, how do we do that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be deceptive. These drugs have taken many, many years to develop. I would say that the first one to be approved took about 15 years, billions of dollars of research to develop. So in what they do, it's not fancy. You're basically putting in a drug that binds to your immune cells and turns them back on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the science behind it is extraordinary, and it's taken many, many years. And this is not a homeopathic medication. It's not like taking vitamins to support the immune system. Okay. They're, they're very engineered uh, drugs. They're antibodies, just like the Herceptins and the Pergitas. Okay. And antibodies are basically proteins engineered in the lab that look like forks, and they actually stick to the immune cells like forks, uh-huh. and they turn the really? immune systems on. So wow. Uh, it's it, it's a it's complicated way to produce a medicine, and I don't want to take it lightly. But um, yeah, I agree with you that uh, it sounds simple, but uh, underneath it's actually very complicated. Wow, it sounds incredibly promising, though. So, is is Providence? Did you say earlier when we were talking that Providence is is kind of right at the forefront of some of this research that's being done? So, I I would say yes. Uh, you know, at Providence, we have a group of about 40 or 50 PhD laboratory scientists that have developed a lot of these immune-based drugs in the lab. And what's fascinating about this group is that we also have a group of medical oncologists that work with those laboratory scientists to move those drugs more quickly from the laboratory to the clinic. So, oh, you know, the convention it. is that you've got people working in a lab at one place and then you know, after many, many years, a pharmaceutical company will buy the drugs that are promising and develop mm-hmm. them in-house. But we try very hard at Providence to actually treat our own patients with the drugs that we've developed here at Providence. And I think that's what's unique about the program. Okay. Yeah. 
So is this still pretty much then in sort of like trial stage? I mean, a person can't walk into their oncologist and say, I want, is it immunotherapy? Am I saying it right? Immunotherapy. Immunotherapy. So can they, so it's still trial stage. So they would have to see if it's something they can plug into. So if a person wanted to plug into that, how would they do that? So what they would do is they would call our office or they would go online to that clinicaltrials.gov. Okay. And I think it's as simple as asking. I mean, okay. you could ask me or if someone has another type of cancer other than breast, we would find the expert in that field. And okay. we would look at that case and say, do we have any clinical trials for them? Okay. Now, in metastatic Perfect. breast cancer, we're opening a trial in the next month, which is combining chemotherapy with immune therapy. So what I oh, like fabulous. about that trials, we don't have to choose one or the other. We're going to yeah. give them in combination. So you get the standard Wonderful. plus you get the immune therapy. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Page, if you'll write that article, let's include that in there too. We'll put that out on our newsletter so people can learn how to go about that. We are actually out of time. Unfortunately, this episode went so fast. So we are out of time. We do um, thank everyone who's been listening. And, you know, this will be posted on the archives in about an hour. So if you didn't hear the whole thing or you've got someone that needs to hear it, please direct them to our website um, or to the the show description. And in the meantime, thanks for joining us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. And until then, remember, there is always hope and we're here to help you find it. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hannafin and Becky Olson again next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is always hope and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time.